Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, we're talking about the federal government's response to the pandemic. Our guest is David Dayen, who is the executive editor of the American Prospect magazine. See prospect.org. He is the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud, the winner of the Studs and Ida Turkle Prize. His next book, Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power, will be released in June. His work has appeared in The Nation, The Intercept, The New Republic, Vice, HuffPost, The Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and more. He's been on MSNBC, CNN, Bloomberg, CNBC, NPR, Pacifica Radio, and David Dan lives in Los Angeles. David, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me, David. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for all the writing you've been doing and publishing at prospect.org. This pandemic seemed to some of us to require what we thought were obvious solutions like Medicare for all and guaranteed basic income, etc. Congress and the White House haven't really seen it that way, have they? No, uh, certainly not. Um, So we, we have gotten sort of a series of uh, pieces of legislation that have grown in certainly the price tag. Um, we, we started with uh, uh, two very small bills, uh, and then we moved on to uh, the third bill, which uh, I guess is called the CARES Act. Um, it's, it's essentially a survival rescue package. This is a massive bill. It's $2.2 trillion, and actually that undercounts uh, what what the actual effect will be because uh, about a half a billion of it goes over to the Federal Reserve that then ups the ante uh, to about $4.5 trillion, uh, as a lending facility for the largest corporations in America. I've been calling it a money cannon. And uh, so, you know, but... That really doesn't totally respond to the circumstances that we're in. I mean, it, it does in the sense of, of being an economic survival package in terms of relief for individuals, potentially small businesses, and, and uh, boosted unemployment checks and some direct payments. But right now we're in a pandemic, and, and the, the, the biggest problem that we have is that hospitals are woefully undersupplied uh, unable to uh, secure the equipment that they need, personal protective equipment, ventilators, things like this, uh, to, to actually deal with the crisis. And there's almost nothing in any of the legislation that has come forth from Congress uh, that would deliver those kinds of supplies in, a, in a, an efficient fashion over to uh, hospitals that desperately need them. So uh, there's a bit of a disconnect between uh, what Congress is, is paying attention to, which is, you know, very important economic fallout from the crisis and uh, the sort of near-term needs uh, in, in, uh, uh, that are directly affected by the crisis itself. They, they seem to be addressing it as a generic economic problem, not as a health crisis requiring uh, people to have sick leave if they're not going to need income and and uh, requiring hospitals to, to have equipment. Meanwhile, they're bailing out uh, companies that say they don't even need it, like Boeing, that as far as I know have nothing to do with hospitals, right? 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's certainly the case. Uh, when you talk about sick leave, uh, that was in the second bill, and that was uh, dramatically narrowed so that something like 75% of all workers in the workforce are not even covered by the temporary sick leave uh, 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 elements that are in uh, that that piece of congressional legislation. Uh, obviously, there there is um, there have been two pieces of legislation that have said we will make testing for COVID nineteen free to everyone, including the uninsured. However, treatment for COVID nineteen for the uninsured has, has uh, was not dealt with by Congress. And of course, if you're facing the prospect of very large bills. Uh, you're you're not going to get tested because you know you can't afford the treatment. Uh, now the president then came out and said, uh, "Well, we'll cover the treatment uh, uh, for any any uninsured patient uh, through uh, executive action." Uh, it's unclear exactly what executive action would be taken, and of course, uh, once you head down that road, right? Once you say, well, for COVID-19, we will take care of all our citizens and the government will pay for it. Uh, what is the reason that we are not using that strategy to also cover every other disease uh, that's out there uh, and, and pay for it through general taxation? Uh, it, it, it sort of gilds the lily, right, uh, in terms of why we're not doing that kind of a, a single-payer support uh, for everyone. And, and, and even the, the one quarter of, of workers who presumably were covered in the legislation, uh, it's not that clear that, uh, that Trump, the Trump administration is actually going to allow them to, to be covered, right, in terms of sick leave. The devil's in the details with all of these things, right? And so, uh, you know, uh, there, there are some voluntary efforts on the part of businesses to expand their sick leave policies. There's this legislative effort uh, that says that everyone will get two weeks uh, uh, temporarily, but, uh, you know, uh, we, we don't really have a good understanding of it. And a lot of these legislative efforts have really been altered uh, uh, significantly once the actual rules come out of the federal agencies, and, and sick leave is no different. So... Uh, ultimately, it's it's an open question if your company that you work for didn't already have some sort of sick leave policy in place as to whether uh, you will be, you know, definitively covered uh, by whatever, uh, uh, you know, by, by, by the legislation that was passed. Yeah, and there's a there's a great deal of inefficiency and bureaucracy created, is there not, in uh, determining who's insured, who's not insured, who's employed, who's not employed, uh, as compared with providing a single-payer universal health coverage and a universal uh, income, for example? Well, of course, the, the elephant in the room is the fact that so many people are losing their jobs, and consequently, a number of people are losing their health insurance. So... Uh, we have estimates that in the first two weeks of the mass unemployment situation we saw, where we saw first-time jobless claims rise uh, to about 10 million over the course of those two weeks, the expectation is about 3.5 million of those people lost their health insurance as a result. And, uh, you know, what recourse do they have? There are the insurance exchanges under Obamacare, but those are pretty expensive. There's COBRA, 
which is the system when you lose your health insurance where you can maintain it for a number of, of months. But that is even more expensive, usually, to retain the health insurance. Uh, and there's Medicaid for some people who qualify, uh, but that varies from state to state. So uh, this, this crisis is uh, at a time when uh, people need the backstop of, of some system to ensure that they can be covered if they go into the hospital. This, this crisis is creating more uninsured people, and that could only continue next year as the insurance industry, which is going to lose a lot of money through this, uh, potentially tries to make it up. I've seen estimates of up to 40% in increases in annual premiums next year uh, because of this. And that's just going to drive more people off the insurance rolls. So uh, uh, the, the system of privately providing insurance, whether through employers or through uh, the exchanges in the individual market, uh, is not really well designed for a pandemic, it, 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 and it's kind of breaking down as as we go through this. It's very uncertain, and uh, you know this stopgap that the president has talked about for COVID nineteen obviously doesn't cover other illnesses that people contract over the course of of, of their everyday lives, uh, and so uh, whether or not that that COVID nineteen backstop actually comes into play. Uh, does it, it, it's it's somewhat irrelevant to the damage to the, the health and well-being of Americans from this dramatic loss of insurance that we all expect. But uh, former Vice President Joe Biden has told us that having Medicare for all wouldn't have helped in any way, uh, and this is the the best system uh, possible in the best of all possible worlds. Surely that's that subjective uh, liberal opposition truth, right? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I think what he was trying to say in the context uh, was that you look at a country like Italy that has had a terrible crisis uh, and, and shortages and, and inability for the health system to, to cope with uh, the, the, the damage that has been done, and they have a single-payer system. So, I mean, he was... He was, he was comparing it on very narrow grounds. However, uh, what I would say is that our it's not just the insurance side, but our private for-profit hospital system, which has cut the number of beds available to Americans dramatically over the last 10, 15, 20 years, uh, that, and, uh, that has been a, a, a real problem in this crisis, a real, uh, create a real inability for us to, to handle it. Uh, uh, you know, particularly in rural areas where rural hospitals have been slashed, put out of business. Uh, it, it, once this pandemic reaches those areas, I am extremely concerned for how they are going to be able to handle the crush of patients that come in uh, with, a, with a, a lack of equipment and a lack of basic capacity, just not enough beds to hold these people. So, you know, it, it's it's it, you got to look at it on both sides of this. Obviously, the insurance system is experiencing some serious strains, but it's also the the, the for-profit hospital networks uh, and the provider networks that uh, aren't equipped because uh, they were largely for-profit in the United States, and uh, they saw an empty bed as a cost center, and so uh, they have no ability to ramp up 
when there's a surge of patients. Uh, so so it's, it's really on all ends that the American system is really ill-designed for this kind of crisis. We're speaking with David Dayen, who is executive editor of The American Prospect. David, I've seen a lot of people uh, cheering, uh, including on your website, uh, for the notion that concern about spending large amounts of money is dead. Nobody cares about the deficit anymore, apparently, <laughs> with the idea that they really sincerely did before, and now they don't. Uh, and for for it seems to me, for anyone who's ever noticed the existence of the military budget, the, the concern with spending a lot of money has never been real. Uh, it's always been a concern with spending a, a lot of money where people actually need it. Uh, and here, as we've just been discussing, what we're seeing, once again, is spending a lot of money, but not where people actually need it. Uh, is there is there really cause for for celebration just yet? Well, I wouldn't call it celebration. I mean, uh, it, it certainly is the case that if you just think back to 2009 and the Obama administration's very difficult journey to try to get a stimulus package in after the financial crisis that ended up being capped at something like $700 billion, with, with a, a good portion of that going towards tax breaks for people who didn't really need it. Um, uh, you, you see the, the, the scope of the bill that was passed a couple weeks ago at three times that much without anyone blinking an eye. And it does it is striking that uh, there, there, there is uh, much more resources available this time around uh, even even in 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 terms of raw dollars for you know ordinary working Americans, the six hundred dollar a month boost to unemployment checks that we never saw in the crisis, the twelve hundred dollar direct payments, for example. So uh, I would say that there is a, a, a bit of a shift there. However, you are absolutely right to say. I mean, you know, uh, we we have a we spend seven hundred billion dollars on the military every year, and uh, nobody has a problem with finding that money. Uh, and uh, the, the, the real concern is that on the back end of this, well, I would say two things. Number one, uh, there's disproportionate money involved so far uh, in this crisis for the largest corporations in America relative, even though there's significant support at the lower end, it's, it's nothing compared, it's dwarfed by the size of the support for uh, corporate America. So that is absolutely true. And the second thing is that... Uh, on on the on the back end of this, once we get through this crisis, uh, I I suspect that you will see the same usual suspects go back to saying we can't afford anything, and then we have to engage in massive austerity to protect uh, us from from you know the the scourge of the debt for for future generations, uh, and and you know so these these kind of uh, forces around deficits and debts, they, they go away maybe for moments in time, but they always seem to return. They're like these zombies that, that, that always come back to uh, uh, seek out uh, austerity in, a, in, in ill-advised times. And, and so we're certainly not out of the woods yet, although uh, I think what economists see is that, uh, uh, you know, in the, the Inflation rates, for example, one of the things that, that deficit hawks say, well, inflation will run away if you just keep printing money. Uh, inflation is going to be low for a long, long time. Uh, uh, oil prices are almost at, at, at next to nothing. Uh, we're, we're, we're not at risk of runaway inflation right now. And uh, we have seen a bit of a shift in the economics profession 
since they cried about inflation running away for the last 10 years and it never happened uh to to see that that maybe there 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 wasn't a lot of there there and uh maybe we will uh at least have be better equipped to handle the deficit hawks this time around uh, very well said. I would just note that the $700 billion that everyone cites for military spending is actually just one department uh, that doesn't include the, the energy department, which is largely nuclear weapons, and the military spending by the State Department and the secret agencies. And it's, so it's actually one and a quarter trillion a year, and uh, nobody seems to mind that much, whereas I think any mention of a Green New Deal or Medicare for All is going to get exactly the same how-you're-going-to-pay-for-it response today as well, it would Well have said, a, and, you know, certainly... Uh, 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 who you are and what money you're getting uh, is influential as to whether we can afford it or not. That's always been the case in America. And uh, this this crisis, if anything, should show that those priorities were, were completely misguided. You, you've been writing, David, about uh, about the big banks and, and how they're handling themselves in this crisis and how some of them don't seem to even want to to handle loans to small businesses. How are How are the big banks serving us? Well, it's kind of incredible. So there, there's this small business program. It's 100% guaranteed by the federal government. So the banks are taking on absolutely no risk. They get a portion of these loans. They're forgivable loans as long as the small businesses maintain payroll. Uh, and, and, and that money is given in by the federal government. Uh, the, the banks are making the loans because we don't have a public sector that is, uh, you know, seemingly able to do much of anything uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff. So we're running this pr- the public program through these private banks. They get a very nice fee on every loan that they originate. Uh, they have to do essentially no work. They, they don't have to verify the documentation from these small businesses. They have to do a little bit around uh, making sure the, the, the money laundering isn't taking place, which, you know, is the bare minimum of what these banks should be doing. Uh, and yet, uh, even though this is risk-free money, uh, uh, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars of money uh, worth it to the banks, they don't seem very interested in uh, actually participating in these programs. The first day that they were uh, uh, set free, which was uh, Friday, uh, April the 3rd, uh, only one major lender, Bank of America, actually took applications on that day. The rest have waited. Uh, Wells Fargo has said we're capping our, our uh, involvement in this program to $10 million, which is a portion of the $350 billion available. I should say uh, $10 billion is what uh, Wells Fargo said. That, that's the amount of loans that they're willing to give out. Um, so why is that? Why aren't the banks really that interested in this program? It's a couple things. I mean, I think that, uh, first of all, it, 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 even though it's free money, it's not very much money, and, and they see that uh, they, they operate in billions rather than millions, and, and they don't see uh, much upside potential to it. Uh, this isn't the kind of thing where you make a, a, a big hedge bet and, and, and it pays off for tens of billions of dollars. So it's just not that important to them. And the second thing is that uh, they do have to still conduct this sort of anti-money laundering uh, compliance uh, policy. And uh, that, uh, you know, requires a certain amount of manpower. 
and they just don't want to do it. That's why, for example, Bank of America said we're only offering these loans to people that have an existing lending relationship with us. That's because they can use that old compliance on, on money laundering with their existing clients, and they don't want to pay to, to do any new work, essentially. So uh, there's a certain amount of sloth and laziness in this whole thing, uh, and uh, it, it just seems like small potatoes. It's not, it's not who these banks are, are equipped or set up to really serve. Uh, uh, they're 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 not they're not set up to serve the ordinary person in the street. They're 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 set up to serve the big guys, and uh, that's showing. It, it seems like a wonderful illustration for people of sort of what what a billion is. You know how much money these people deal with. Because you wrote that that it would be an hour's work for a junior banker uh, to get a bank ten to a hundred thousand uh, dollars through offering these loans, and I could see that very rapidly getting into the millions. Uh, but a billion. Uh, or multiple billions is is is, is very far away. Uh, it's it's it seems like a useful way to explain to people how rich the rich are. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a very good point. I mean, uh, on the first day of the program, Bank of America said it took in uh, something like twenty two billion dollars worth of of loans applications for that, and just based on a, a simple sketch of the percentage of processing fees. They made six hundred and sixty-six million dollars in a day, and you'd think like they would want to keep making that much money in a day. Yeah. But yet, it's it's not uh, it's not seen as a, a major priority to them. You know, there's a lot of manpower involved. Just just data entry, real basic stuff, like inputting this stuff into the program. And, you know, they just don't want to hire people to, to actually have to have to undertake that. And, and even in a short-term environment, even when there are millions of people out of work, uh, it's it's really striking. And, uh, and, and what's more striking is the incapacity of the federal government to just do this program themselves rather than running it through a set of self-interested private actors. Uh, if 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 the goal is to speed relief to uh, these uh, small businesses that really are on a knife's edge that uh, don't have a lot of time to wait around for uh, for these loans, they, they they you know they're they're it could be a matter of weeks for some of them uh, as to whether they go out of business or not. Why can't the federal government hire a bunch of data entry specialists and uh, put through this program themselves? Uh, we don't orient ourselves to thinking that way in America, and uh, we're, we're living with the results. It almost uh, strikes me, I know it's sort of heretical to say, but that bankers might just not be essential workers. Uh, I mean, <laughs> we, we've, got, we've got weapons makers as essential, even though you can't eat a missile, you can't get cured with a missile. Uh, farm workers are not essential, even though we need food. Uh, what, what sort of a democracy is this? Who got to vote on who's essential and who's not? <laughs> well, it is interesting, and I think we are seeing a reckoning of of who is essential, at least in a community. Uh, when you see what grocery workers and warehouse workers, delivery workers, truckers, uh, and farm workers, as you say, how important they are to everyone's uh, everyday lives or pharmacists. Um, it, we're, we're, we're seeing that the, 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 the quality of being essential is pretty unrelated to the amount of money you make in this country. 
And uh, I think that, uh, or I hope at least, that we're going to see uh, a reckoning around that. I mean, we're already seeing workers uh, taking to the taking uh, the the matter into their own hands, striking. You're seeing wildcat strikes at the Amazon warehouses and elsewhere, all across the country, and uh, they know that they have a certain level of importance right now. They are essential workers, and uh, we're we're seeing this unrest as a result of this disconnect between, uh, you know, CEOs who aren't really essential workers making millions and millions of dollars a year and someone making 15 bucks an hour who uh, the entire economy apparently relies on. So uh, I, I do think that we're, we're seeing sort of a reorientation of this. And uh, maybe, maybe as we go forward, uh, we, will, we will see that play out. Uh, I hope so. We we have just a few minutes left. Uh, I know that uh, Senator Sanders has been proposing better legislation, although more or less going along with these corporate giveaways. What what should people be demanding? Who's got the plan that we need? <laughs> well, that's a good question. If we had the plan, then we might be able to inter- uh, uh, implement it. Um, you know, I I think that uh, there's a lot to be said for. Uh, what what you could broadly say is as stopping financial time. So what we did is we put the economy to sleep. We 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 said to all these non-essential businesses, you you have to stop working. But financial time, which is your bills that keep coming, your mortgage, your your rent, uh, all of these uh, uh, other things like credit cards, they keep coming. Uh, so there there is sort of a sense that, well, why don't we put those to sleep along with the rest of the economy? And, uh, and, and maybe the way that you do it is that essential workers uh, continue to get hazard pay uh, by, by, you know, getting their, their pay up, but they also get this benefit uh, of a moratorium on rent, a moratorium on mortgage loans, moratorium on consumer loans, things like that. Uh, at the same time, uh, uh, you, you, if you stop that for everybody, then society could uh, maybe go forward, uh, at least in the short term, uh, with uh, additional uh, supports like uh, what we've seen on unemployment and direct payments. Uh, that could be the way to go forward. Uh, and then once the crisis lifts, that you uh, you know restart financial time at the same time you restart the economy and at the same level. So uh, I think that's probably uh, uh, economically speaking the way to go. Uh, obviously, what we need in the short term is some coherence to this this absolutely broken and chaotic supply chain to deliver supplies uh, that are being manufactured to hospitals. Whether you're talking about uh, masks and respirators or ventilators or gowns or other pieces of protective equipment, uh, vital drugs, things like that. Uh, that's really the, the, the near-term crisis here uh, as we start to peak in the uh, numbers of people who need hospitalization. So uh, I, I think that those two things in tandem represent probably the best way forward. 
We have been speaking with David Dayan, who has articles on the on the supply chain and the middlemen and the profiteers and and countless related topics uh, and many great articles by other writers. You can find at prospect.org. David is the executive editor of the American Prospect magazine. David, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. All right. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, Please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.